All right, so today we, uh, we continue our series on, uh, on the Holy Spirit. Thanks to Joe last week, I heard he did a, an awesome job. We were actually up in uh, Hume seeing our youngest son. That's a story in and of itself. He's always an interesting guy. Um, but today we're going to uh, get back into our sermon, ser- our sermon series. And, and our topic today is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's one of those topics that uh, most of us that are Christians and have believed in Jesus Christ, put our faith in Jesus Christ for our eternal destiny. We go, yeah, I know what that is. I know, I know what that is. But the question today is not what is it academically, what is it from just a single knowledge base, what is it to me personally? What does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit mean to me personally? How has it impacted my life? Has it impacted my life? And so with that, um, we're just going to open up and we're going to have a little bit of background, a little bit of, of, uh, of um, refresher. And simply this, and you have an outline in your, uh, in your bulletin if you care to follow along. But uh, the first bullet point is simply this. It's always been God's promise to dwell with his people. Kind of a no-brainer. But we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see God's promise to dwell with his people. We see his presence right at creation as he walks in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. We see him choose his people. We see him send the patriarchs and establish the chosen people of Israel. We see him send prophets and kings, always calling his people back to relationship We see his glory manifested in the Old Testament in certain places, but primarily in the temple and the tabernacle. I have those backwards. The tabernacle, which is the tent, and the the temple. And the scholars and rabbis refer to that as his glory. We often refer to the Shekinah glory of God as when Moses got to see the backside of, of God and his face glowed. But the meaning of Shekinah is actually God's presence or the manifest presence of God. And we see that in the Old Testament, in the pillar of fire, the cloud. We see it descend, his glory descend on the temple and the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, it says this, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Speaking of the temple, when it was dedicated It says in 1 Kings, when the priest came out of the holy place, the holy of holies, the thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their work because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. A physical manifestation and representation of the presence of God. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit's role primarily in the Old Testament of being coming on individuals for service, empowering them for service. We see that in Judges. We see that in Samuel and Kings, where we talk about Samson and Saul, people that we know about from the Bible. We also see it coming upon people that we just don't know as well. Othiel, and I'm not even going to pronounce this other name, or maybe I'll try. Um, it's Bazala, Bez, Bez, who was a craftsman. God empowered him and gave him skill to honor him in his work. But we see the Holy Spirit coming up on in those. We see God's desire to dwell with his people in the promise of Messiah. But in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, it talks about the son, 
child is given, son is born. But it also talks about a government without end. A reign of peace that is forever. God's clear desire through Messiah to have a physical and ongoing relationship with his people. There's also the promise in the Old Testament as we translation into the New Testament of the giving of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2 talks about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Peter confirmed that in Acts 2 and actually quotes Joel, the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit was poured out. Jeremiah 32 talks about how the Spirit of the Lord will dwell in his people. Get into the New Testament. Obviously, Messiah comes. We believe we have this this promise and this mystery and this reality that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. And it gives us a citizenship in heaven forever. Philippians 3 tells us that we are citizens of heaven where God, where Jesus resides, where Jesus lives. We also see that uh, in the millennial reign of Christ at the end of the year, I start to melt, just let me know, okay, <clears throat> at the end of time, that there won't be a temple in the New Jerusalem because God Almighty and the Lamb will be the temple that lights everything, His presence among us. And then, of course, John 14, which we've been studying quite a bit, and we're going to look at today as, as we start, John 14, um, where Jesus promises to send the advocate. And let's just read that as, as a refresher. John 14, verse 15. New Living Translation. If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. No longer a relationship with, with God based on following the rules or rote obedience a relationship with God based on obedience, founded in love. Note the shift. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit that leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him, and it doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. I will not abandon you as orphans, and I will come to you. Jump down to verse 26. When the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. It's an interesting wordplay there because, because Jesus earlier up in the chapter talks about how he only says and does what the Father tells him to do. And now he's telling us that the Holy Spirit will... Tell us and enlighten us on what he has said. Note, note the connection there. So he is, uh, he is promised not only to be with us in a physical sense, but as we put our faith in him to mysteriously indwell in us. And as Bob has pointed out, indwelling means simply to take up residence. And as this scripture says, to take up permanent residence with our soul. So, the difference of God living with us and God living in us, and that living in us making us joint heirs and his children. 
That's what the Holy Spirit indwelt in me does. And so, below us to the second point of our outline, the Holy Spirit dwells in us both individually and corporately. Obviously, we're the church. So, what does that mean? I want to focus on one thing because I found this very, very interesting and, and enlightening. Um, think of yourself as the temple of God. Paul clearly defines us as that in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, speaking of me as an individual, he says, talking about sin, and specifically sexual sin, he says, don't you realize, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Holy Spirit residing in us. 2 Corinthians one twenty one. again speaking about me as an individual. It is God who enables us, Paul speaking about himself and his team, enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised. The Holy Spirit enlightening Christ's words, guaranteeing everything he's promised. Talking about the church, 1 Corinthians 3.16. A lot of 1 Corinthians here. God's, Paul's addressing the church. Don't you realize? There's that phrasing. Don't you realize? As if it should be self-evident to us. Don't you realize that all of you together, church, are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God lives in you? For God's temple is holy. And you, the church, are that temple. Are we holy? We are the temple. Are we holy? Because quite frankly, if we're not holy and following God, we're just an edifice. We're, a, we're building. We're like the temple of old. Magnificent structure, glorious. Josephus talks about what a vision it was when you came and looked at it and how the sun would reflect off it. A wonder of the world, so to speak. But at points in time, that temple was nothing more than a building. Second Corinthians 6.16, speaking again of the church. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Speaking of literal idols, but the question is, what's the idol in my life today? Is there an idol in my life today? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. Quoting Jeremiah 32. I will be their God and they will be my people. Last one about the church. You are members of God's family. We're a family. Together we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Built on the word of God. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple in the Lord. The interesting thing about most of those verses is that 
The word used, that Paul uses for temple is nahos, nahos. And that word literally means shrine. But it doesn't mean shrine in the sense of the entire temple complex. Speaking of the temple of God, right, the, the Old Testament temple. It doesn't mean the temple as in the entire complex, court of the Gentiles, all those things. It means the inner sanctuary. It means the Holy of Holies, as we contextually relate it to our lives. So let's think about that for a minute. The Shekinah glory of God, the manifest presence of God, the glory that God possesses that was manifest in the Old Testament now resides in us. If that doesn't begin to give you chills or reflection, then you need to have a pause, as we would say. And and just to put this in perspective for you all, I was raised in a a family, I was raised in a church, I was raised in an independent, very, very conservative Baptist church. We relegated the Holy Spirit to he was the kissing cousin of the Trinity, basically. Okay? We barely believed in him as God, to be real honest. All his role was, was to basically the power to save you and indwell you. But nobody knew what indwell meant. It's just that you... You invited Christ into your life, and somehow that, that transitioned to the Holy Spirit. And so the church, me, my family, the power of the Holy Spirit, foreign concept. All we knew was that the power of the Holy Spirit was those charismatics that spoke in tongues and rolled on the floor. Okay? Totally throwing out the validity of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's why this study for me personally has been excellent. It's forced me to look at some of my, my, uh, my preconceived notions of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And so it's a time of reflection. When we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's a time of reflection. So... I have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me as promised by Jesus Christ. I know that he informs me of the truth. He helps me to understand what Jesus taught us when he was on this earth, what's in this Bible. He's the power of the resurrection. So who am I? See, when people ask me who I am, I'm Amanda's husband. I almost said Amanda's wife. I practiced that, okay? Um, Sometimes the mouth speaks before the mind actually engages gear. Um, I'm Amanda's husband. I'm the father of Tara, Sean, Nick, Samuel. I work in the natural food industry. I work for a small company that's very unique. You ask me who I am and what I do, and that's what I'm going to tell you. Almost as if it is my identity. But that's not my identity. That's like being sick and telling you what my symptoms are, but not telling you what my sickness is. What is my identity? I'm a child of the king. 
And the Holy Spirit affirms that in my soul. So our third point on our outline is simply this. Indwelling equals identity. Indwelling equals identity. If you take nothing else away from today, know that what God has placed in us, the Holy Spirit, who expands and tells us all truth, is who I am, really. We talk about being citizens of, of, um, of heaven. But three quick points to take away. When you ask that question, who am I really? Two things. Once you take away, I'm God's own child. I am God's own child. And I am loved by God beyond measure. Galatians 4, 7 says this. You're no longer a slave. Right? The Bible tells us that we're a slave to something, and before we know Christ, we're a slave to sin. We're just a slave to our nature. Right? You are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this. Since, those of us that have believed in Jesus Christ, this is assuming that that's the case. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities, not the promises, not the hopes, the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven. Consciously meditate on the things of heaven. Not the things of earth. For you have died to this life. And your real life, who am I really? Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 John 3, 1. Favorite book of the Bible, 1 John for me. You can hear that every time I speak. See how much our Father loves us. See how much our Father loves us. For He calls us His children. And that is what we are. What is your identity? Who are you, really? The things I do are an expression of who I am. How I view myself dictates how I often act. Do I allow the Spirit of the living God to actually speak with me? See, in my, in my upbringing, if the Spirit of the living God actually spoke to you, you went and hid or, or got some medication, right? I mean, it's just not that thing. And there are times where I have been quiet enough and listened enough that I've actually heard God speak. And one, when my, one was when my mom was passing away. His peace and his comfort were just like somebody was sitting in the car with me. But how often do we hear the prompting, the urging, the voice of the Spirit? How often do we even take time to listen to that, to seek that? To want that. How deep 
do I really want to go with the Holy Spirit? So the question is, what's my true identity? How do I define myself? Of course, we're talking mostly, so far this lesson is mostly focused on Christians. And, and if, uh, if there's anyone here that actually is just seeking, doesn't know, you heard a story, you wanted to come and check it out, you saw us online, you know, it all starts with what we call salvation. There is no relationship with the Holy Spirit, with God, unless, unless you accept what His Son, Jesus Christ, what the Father, Son, Jesus Christ claimed to be, claimed who he was. Um, there's just nothing there. As a matter of fact, the scripture we read in, in, in John 14 tells us that. It says, it was right there between the two uh, descriptions of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 17b, the world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him. Jesus Christ, until you accept him, is kind of a mystery. The Bible doesn't make sense a lot of times. You know, I was reading a book, it's by the, the Blackaby brothers, and he was telling the story about, um, one of the brothers was telling the story about how he, uh, he there was a, a young lady from college, very seeker-oriented, wanted to know who Christ was, wanted to know his claims, but academic. So she had a list of like 40 questions she developed. Wanting to know what the Bible said about this and what it meant by that and all this. Got about three questions. Came over to their house. Had her come over for dinner. Got about three questions into the, the thing. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop right there. He said, I, I want to I tell you and I want to make a couple guarantees. That um, first off, you'll never completely understand what you're asking until you accept Christ. You kind of have the, the, the cart before the horse so to speak. The Bible will never make true sense to you until you understand and accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And I guarantee you, if you make that decision, most of your questions will open up to you. Because that's the promise of Scripture. Holy Spirit speaks into our lives the truth of what Jesus Christ said while he was here on this earth. He only speaks what Jesus tells him to speak. Short story, she goes, I want that. I want to accept Jesus Christ. Two weeks later, comes back to their home and says, gee, of those 40 questions, I've gone through like 35 of them, and they're not questions for me anymore. Right? It's not that all questions go away. It's that the basic questions of who God is, who Christ is, what faith is, what eternity looks like, all of a sudden... And those of us that are in this room that have accepted Jesus Christ, we've all experienced that. We've all experienced that. But until you make that decision, it's kind of, it's as the saying goes, Greek to me, to a lot of us. But here's the thing. You can't get there on your own. You know, John's a pretty direct guy when he, when he teaches. I like that about him. And he says in verse uh, John 6:63, he says this simple sentence, "The spirit alone gives eternal life." Right? The power of the resurrection. The spirit is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort zip accomplishes nothing. You can't get there on your own. John 16:9. We read in John 16, um, I'm just going to flip over there and read a couple verses. 
John 16, Jesus says in verse 7, but in fact it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Then he says this, the world's sin, my sin, is that it refuses to believe in me. The only thing you're ever really convicted of in this life is your refusal to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. That's the condemnation. But Jesus loves us so much that he came, he sacrificed, he bled, he died, and he resurrected, conquering death. So it's this simple, right? It's this simple, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no ambiguity there. You will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that I am made right with God. And it is by the confession of my mouth that I am saved. It's that simple. And if you're here today and you don't know that, you don't know Jesus Christ, you haven't done that, please come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. For those of us that are here and we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, I listed this uh, in, your, in your outline as open or closed. Okay? And what I mean by that is, is simply this. Am I open to the leading of the Holy Spirit or am I closed off? Am I closed off because my background my background just kind of holds a little bit on me. It affects me. It impacts me. It makes me, I don't know, hesitant. Or, um, or am I just closed off because I'm too comfortable? Okay. If we're the temple of the living God, with the power of the resurrection living, us, living in us, revealing God's truth to us, then why are we, why am I, why are we as the church, why am I as an individual seemingly so ineffectual and powerless? Question, how's my relationship with Jesus Christ? How is my relationship with the Holy Spirit? See, indwelling and filling are not the same thing. Indwelling is a promise that comes upon us when we're saved. The promise of the Holy Spirit indwells us. Filling can be a matter of degrees. And we know that because Paul tells us that there are a couple things that we do um, or can do that affect our relationship with the Holy Spirit, with God. Ephesians tells us that we're saved for a purpose. Holy Spirit empowers us for that purpose. But three things to consider as we begin to draw to a close. Three things to consider. And this is kind of meditation time for this, this uh, service. Number one, do I, do we as a church, we are the church, desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Without a true yieldness, yield I don't even know if that's a word, but I put it in there. Without true yieldness and relationship with the Holy Spirit, do I pray for His power 
but don't really show that I love him or want relationship with him by the way I live my life. What I call love through obedience. Number two, do I, do we, grieve the Holy Spirit? Do we sadden the Holy Spirit by the way we behave, by the way we interact, by the way we live our lives? Ephesians 4.30, and do not bring sorrow. Clear warning. Do not bring sorry, sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of reception. Do I grieve? Do we as a church grieve the Holy Spirit? Number three, points to consider. Do I quench? Do I stifle? The power and leading of the Holy Spirit. He's already in me. He indwells me. Now we're talking about my relationship with him and the degree and the depth of that relationship. First Thessalonians 5:19 to 22. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Test everything I'm saying. Look it up. Do a little Bible research. Um, Hold on, hold on to what is good and stay away. Flee, run, sprint. Don't look back from every kind of evil. And the word that that Paul uses here for quench is the same word that's used in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about the armor of God. And he tells us by the shield of faith to quench the fiery arrows of sin that Satan shoots our way. You don't think that we can quench our relationship with the power, with, with the Holy Spirit and the power He brings into our lives? Same word that God tells us that our shield of faith actually puts out the fiery darts that Satan shoots our way. Do I stifle the power and leading of the Holy Spirit? Billy Graham says it this way. He says, Before we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, we must deal honestly and completely, honestly and completely, with every known sin in our lives. If I fail to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is God's will for my life, Luke 11, remember that it is not because of God's reluctance. As we as parents, the Luke verses, we as parents know to give good things to our parents. How much more? How much more will God give us the Holy Spirit if we just ask? It's not because of God's reluctance. The fault is entirely on my side. So here's the most basic question any Christian can ask. Who is ruling my life? Is it self? Am I still in control? Or is it Christ? So, am I open to the Spirit's leading? Is it my deepest desire to know and be led by the Holy Spirit? Or am I closed? 
in my life, it's not that I'm so was so closed and I'm trying to be more open. It's not that I'm closed to that I don't want him to lead me. It's that often I think I'm just too stinking comfortable. I kind of like things the way they are. But my depths is nowhere near what it should be. Let's pray.